Hello, everybody, and welcome to another 1740 podcast. I'm Alexander War, and I'm joined by Maudy Lowe, and we've got a very interesting guest to talk to this time around. She is a lawyer from Dublin in Ireland who first came to attention in the Oxfordian world when she won a video competition with the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship, making a splendid video uh, called With the Mind I Shall Be Seen. It's still online. You can find it and look it up. And it's uh, a fascinating, not only fascinating in its contents and its perceptions of Edward de Vere and how we can be confident that he was using the pseudonym Shakespeare, but in the approach, in the way that she comes to the subject with a mixture of acting and scholarship. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Rosemary. Hi, Rosemary. Hi, Marty. Hi, Alexander. Thank you very much. Well, Rosemary, I now know you quite well because you are a fellow trustee on the De Vere Society, of which I'm currently the chairman. Uh, So I feel uh, odd asking you some questions in in one way and in another way not odd, because actually we talk about all sorts of business on the De Vere Society board. But the things we're going to talk about today, we don't talk about very much. So I'm very interested to hear your answers to some of it. So first of all, I, I, I mean, just notice that your approach to the Oxfordian question, to the Shakespeare authorship question is very different from other people's. You've you've come at it in a way that you want to explain it to other people in a way that others don't. It's not straightforward lecturing. It's not, as I said in my intro, it's a bit of acting and a bit of this and a bit of that. Tell us a bit about uh, how you how you got into the Oxfordian subject and why it was that you chose these interesting paths, these interesting ways to uh, to share it with others. Uh, so I came to the Oxfordian movement through acting. Um, my day job is as a lawyer. And about 20 years ago, as an adult, I started taking acting classes and I'd never acted in my life before. And the more I did it, the more I, I loved it. And in around 2008, I had the opportunity um, after seeing a fantastic production of the play Julius Caesar by Andy Hines of taking acting classes with him. And he teaches classical acting. And for a period of about eight years, for one night a week, um, there would be a group of us and we would study how to perform Shakespeare's texts. Now, I found learning to perform Shakespeare a lot more difficult than learning uh, modern acting techniques. And I really struggled with it for quite a while. Um, And during all that time, I never thought about who the author was, even though when I'm working on other uh, texts, uh, for example, John B. Keane, I would always think of the author and where they were coming from, the environment they grew up, what influenced them. And in around 2013, uh, we were all out in the pub one night and somebody said that there was a new documentary out called Last Will and Testament, and it was about Shakespeare authorship. And I was saying, what do you mean Shakespeare authorship? And that was the first I heard that there was the possibility of somebody else having written the plays and not Will from Stratford. So I watched that documentary and it was like um, an explosion. Um, I instantly knew it made sense. There was... um, Do you think that's partly because because you're a lawyer? I mean, in in the history of uh, anti-Stratfordian thinking, lawyers are, are very strongly on the anti-Stratfordian side, because they, 
examine evidence and that's their job is looking at evidence and they can see that the evidence tilts away from William of Stratford. Mm. It, it was both evidence and, and you're right, um, you know, it's drummed into us from day one in learning law that we always have to go to source material. So we don't just accept what's written in a book or what someone tells us. You always have to go back to uh, checking the source. Um, but also, I think it was at a, at a deep level, there was some recognition because I had been studying the texts for so long and those characters, they, they were... There was such in-depth psychological churning going on um, and they were all set in courtly environments and it, it made complete sense then that the writer was intimately familiar with that background. Um, so then when you mentioned my video, um, Alexander, I think what I probably did with that video was actually combining evidence because I'm very much that way of thinking with my training but also looking at some of the psychological angles from which Edward de Vere was coming from. And it's, it's very clear that uh, disguise is a huge theme within the, um, the works. And I wanted to bring that out. Um, and his last name, um, that's also another big theme. Uh, so what I did was I would talk about these themes and then very briefly cut to a piece of text from Shakespeare where, where that was illustrated. So yeah, and it was, and it was lovely then obviously to, to win the competition. Um, that was in 2019, I think. Wow, from 2019, so you've come a really long way. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the play that you've just recently completed? Because treading the boards can be quite daunting, let alone writing a one woman play. Um, what inspired you to do that? So setting out, um, the origins of the play came from my decision to travel to the places associated with Edwards de Vere. And I've always been fascinated by place. Um, I love traveling to somewhere that's associated with someone who might be dead and just getting a sense of this is where this person lived and worked, etc. So by the time I decided to undertake those travels, I had already studied a good bit of Oxfordianism um, and I had read a lot of materials and I knew the kind of the main focal points to concentrate on. So his place of birth, um, then um, where he was brought up um, in Cecil House, where he uh, was tutored. Um, and then also the various houses that he lived in in London, um, Fisher's Folly. And also he lived in two uh, houses in Hackney. And then Oxford Place by London Stone was another of his houses. So. I was keen to to travel to those sites and see what was there now. Um, and then, of course, is, Italy. Is it because, um, sorry to interrupt you, but I, I'm fascinated by this um, association of place. I mean, do you, when you go to a place like, for instance, Headingham Castle, the great uh, seat of the Veers, uh, do you actually, do, do you get a resonance off these places? Do you feel that you're somehow getting in touch with Edward de Vere in a way that you couldn't if you were just sitting in your desk in your house in Dublin? Um, I think so, because when you go to the place, um, it opens up your imagination um, and you think, OK, this is where this person lived and breathed. Uh, it becomes an awful lot more alive. Um, and then what happened was uh, quite extraordinarily, um, some lovely magic moments or synchronicities used to happen when I used to go to these places and I wrote about them in the, in the play as well. 
Um, now, obviously, something things like that are completely unexpected, but they they, they kept happening. And um, it was even though originally I planned to see all these places just for my own sense of, you know, feeling of oneness with Edward de Vere that, you know, he lived here and he did this here, he did that there. Um, because of so many magic moments happening, I thought, you know, this is so fascinating. I must write all this up in the form of a one woman show. So that's where the show came out of. Yes. And, and I've seen the show. I saw it in Edinburgh and it's terrific. I mean, it, it really is absolutely gripping, uh, which is very clever of you to make it gripping because it's just you on the stage. As you say, it's a one woman show. You're sometimes being yourself and talking directly to the audience. Uh, sometimes you appear almost to be talking to your late mother. Sometimes you're in, in the role of a Shakespearean role, and yet it all trips seamlessly from, from one to the other. Um, the basis, as I saw it, the, the sort of main structure, as I saw it, was your going from place to place, seeping, sort of allowing the atmosphere of these places where Edward de Vere had been or passed through or lived or whatever it was, and thinking and theorising and going back in time and with bits of your own life sewn into it. Very, very clever idea. Do you think, though, that as much as everybody clearly enjoyed it, to what degree do you think that it might have changed people's opinions if, if people came to see it, who, for instance, were just Stratfordian and never heard of the Oxfordian argument? Did you get any sense that it was converting people, as it were? I, I definitely think it has um, opened people's minds um, whereby if they are curious, um, they, they certainly will go down that route. Um, the, the two questions that have come up for me afterwards um, from people who've seen the play who don't know much about um, the, the movement is, firstly, weren't there plays written after 1604? So how could Edward de Vere have been the author? That's the, the first thing they say. And the second thing is always, well, you know, why did the author uh, feel that they had to hide his hide their name his or her name um now there are two you know very fundamental questions um so the fact that people are asking the right questions is is is, is it, you know they're on the right track and i answer them as, as as best as i can um but we don't have you know full answers obviously to you know why why the name was uh hidden just can can you actually try just to answer as as, as briefly as you can the question as to why uh how how he managed to write plays after 1604 when he died in 1604 what is your answer that you give to these people when they ask it well well my answer is that um the establishment academia um they pluck certain aspects from the play um for example they pluck uh the still vexed vermouths that quote from the tempest um from the Tempest and they tie that then with Bermuda and uh, the ship having gone to a report of a ship having gone to Bermuda in uh, 1609 but what I would say to that is um, there are so many different ways you can interpret still vexed Bermuda it's also to do with an area of London um, where there was drinking and carousing going on um, and also there were many, many shipwrecks that happened uh, in the late 1500s. There were reports of those shipwrecks. And indeed, Edward de Vere himself was involved in a shipwreck. So 
how yeah, do you so, think so what actually... you're saying really is that the, the, the dating evidence for post-1604 is extremely flimsy if one's looking it... at a little sentence like still vexed vermouths to mm. prove that a, a play was written after 1604. Absolutely. It's, it's the flimsiness of the evidence. Just going back to your play, how easy or difficult was that to write so open-heartedly? Um, well, that's a very interesting question, Maudie, because there were times when I really, uh, well, firstly, I wondered would I be able to make a play out of this at all? But also then I really wrestled with certain things, whether I should put them in or not. Um, the two things I wrestled with putting in are, uh, firstly, uh, my own uh, personal circumstances. Uh, my mom had recently passed away and it was still very raw, but it very much tied in with uh, one of the incredible trips I had to, to Mantua. So I felt I, I had to write about it, even though I never knew that, you know, when I was going to be speaking about it as an actor, how it was going to affect me because it was so raw. The other thing I really wrestled with um, in terms of writing the play um, is, and I know I mentioned that this was the cause of the play, it was all the wonderful synchronicities, but because I'm a lawyer and because um, I'm very much focused on hard evidence, I thought going down the road of talking about synchronicities um, would sound very, uh, you know, left field. Um, but at the same time, I felt I had to put it in because this is what I was experiencing. And um, so in a way, I allowed the play then to write itself. I stopped judging it. I stopped thinking about, you know, this might sound ridiculous or that might sound you know, crazy. Um, I just put it all down there. And in the end, it actually worked out really well, because there's a very good intermingling, I think, of, you know, facts, personal experience, and magic moments, and uh, the, the thread, the through line works quite well, um, I think. Um, your, your play as well beautifully takes you to the shores of Italy, following in the footsteps of Edward de Vere. With everything you were going through at the time, can you walk us through your emotional journey? Um, Yes, so when I went initially to Italy, um, my mum was still reasonably okay. Um, she was still at home, but um, there was a period where she got very ill and she was in hospital and then she was moved to a nursing home and that lasted about nine months. And for two, um, I had two short trips to Italy in the space of, of those nine months. And um, it was, well, firstly, it was kind of hard going away from, from mum for that, even though it was a short period. But she was very much on my mind um, because we would keep in touch on the phone. Um, and there was a beautiful moment when I went to Mantua. And obviously, Mantua is, we, we don't have hard evidence that Edward de Vere went there, but uh, we have an awful lot of soft evidence that he did. Um, and uh, the two brilliant galleries there, Palazzo Te um, and the Duckel Palace house paintings that appear in, in Shakespeare's works. But outside of Mantua, um, and this is the, the, the closing, the closer for Edward Vere having been to Mantua, is that there's a beautiful little church, Santa Maria della Grazia, um, and in that church, there is the tomb of uh, Baldassare Castiglione, and it has a memorial of the risen Christ um, done by Giulio Romano. Um, and 
the there are so many echoes of that um, theme of resurrection of rising from the dead in uh, the Winter's Tale, which is the very same play that mentions the only artist referred to in Shakespeare's works, which is Giulio Romano. But when I went to that church, Maudie, to, to get back to your question, um, my mom actually rang me at a critical juncture and it was that day happened to be my birthday and her memory was really fading, but she somehow remembered it was my birthday. And I said, mom, I said, how do you know it's my birthday? And she said, you know, how could I ever forget? And it was just so moving because her memory had been desperately poor and none of us could understand how she remembered that that was my birthday. But I was having trouble finding the tomb in the church uh, because there are numerous little side chapels and I was under time pressure. And the most beautiful thing was that I was standing alongside a darkened chapel um, when mum actually rang me and I went outside to the church to take the call. And then eventually with way more toing and froing um, and the help of a woman, I found the chapel and it was the same chapel that I had been standing right next to it when, when mum called. So there were just so many beautiful moments and I just felt that there was, you know, some kind of help or push from something larger than me that, that I can't understand. Yes, well, that's absolutely fascinating. And, and, and you describe it in very real terms. And, and it's worth pointing out, I think, that um, why you were looking for Castiglione's tombs. Of course, Edward de Vere was, was passionate about Castiglione. Castiglione was similar to him in some ways. He, he was a, a courtier. He was a writer. He also wrote plays. Um, and he was a general uh, all-round Renaissance man, as you might say. And he wrote this book called The Courtier, Il Cortigiani, which uh, Edward de Vere patronised and famously wrote a Latin forward to it saying what a brilliant brilliant book it was and what an extraordinarily brilliant man uh, Castiglione was and so it, it's yes I mean quite apart from the paintings you talk about uh, and the other little bits of evidence it, it is almost certain that he went to Mantua he, we know he stayed Edward de Vere stayed in Venice for quite a lot of time but he tripped around to different cities and and he was going there in order to find out more about the art and the literature we now know that mischievously left out from Alan Nelson's great big book about Edward de Vere because he didn't want us to know that he was on a literary trip and that has now at last come out in some letters that Alan Nelson hid but uh, yeah so so that connection between Castiglione and Edward de Vere was I assume in the back of your mind that that led you when you were in Mantua specifically to want to see the Castiglione tomb as well as as you say um, of the art of Giulio Romano that is mentioned in Winter's Tale, which, by the way, as we all know in French, is uh, Le Conte d'Iver, the tale of Vere. And it is, of course, a play all about someone who mistrusts his wife, who's had a baby, and he doesn't think it's his baby, precisely what happened to Edward de Vere. So you went from Mantua to, I mean, I think one of the most extraordinary things that you discovered that you put into your play and time it very beautifully is what happened to you when you found Shakespeare's Belmont. Can you, can you give us um, a, maybe just a, a, a brief version of what you found there and what Belmont, the real Belmont is? Um, yes. So uh, Belmont is a villa outside of Venice and uh, two very distinguished Oxfordians 
Richard Rowe and Naomi Magri had both investigated uh, what could be the actual geographical location of Belmont, which is referred to in The Merchant of Venice as Portia's house. And both of them studied all the clues in the play, and there are five or six clues that point to Villa Foscari as being Belmont. So clearly then I was very keen to see it because it, it, it would have been obvious to me then that Edward de Vere would have visited it. And it's quite difficult to go to because it's only open certain days of the week, so you have to really plan it. So when I went there, um, no photography is allowed, they're very strict. Um, and I was blown away the minute I came in the door with these incredible frescoes. They were faded, but they were still stunning. And I thought, oh, my God, like, what would it have been like for Edward de Vere to have arrived? Because they were all painted in the mid uh, 16th century. He was there when the paint was, you know, reasonably fresh. And what kind of impact would those images have had? So, yeah, And he, he would have arrived off a boat, wouldn't he? along the mm. Brenta on his journey, possibly on his journey down towards Venice, or he could have gone as, as a separate trip there because it's only 20 miles or so, isn't it, from Venice? Uh, absolutely. It's a 20-mile round trip. And, of course, all of that is echoed in Portia's trip to Venice um, in, in the play The Merchant of Venice. But there's a small little room at the back of the villa, and um, I was given a, a floor map when I went around, and the floor map uh, mentioned that there was a picture of... Um, a woman called Portia, now we spell P-O-R-C-I-A. And I, I was just dumbstruck that there was an actual portrait of, um, now the, the, I suppose when I looked at it first, I thought, who is this Portia? And it was very clear from the picture that it was a Roman um, drawing, a Roman fresco. Um, so then immediately in my head, I thought, oh my goodness, there's another Portia in Shakespeare who's the Brutus's wife, and she's Roman, uh, and she's in the play Julius Caesar. And I thought, isn't it so extraordinary that the only other character who uh, has that name Portia in uh, Shakespeare's plays, her house is pinpointed as Belmont in the play, and she's given the name Portia. So he's intermingling the classical Portia um, and you know, with, with the fictitious Portia and using the house in which the classical Portia is on the wall as the actual abode of the fictional Portia in The Merchant of Venice. So I was, I was just blown away by that. Well, it's um, thrilling. It's really thrilling. And, and if you're right about it, and certainly you lay out a very good case, you're entering, in a sense, into the mind of Edward de Vere uh, 400 years previously, and that must have been a, a terrifically exciting feeling for you, uh, particularly as you were actually standing there uh, right by the picture and thinking that he stood there and saw this same fresco all those years ago and then allowed allowed that association to, to come into mm. his play. Amazing. Rosemary, if you could name anyone in De Vere's life that you feel you connect with, who would it be and why? I do have great sympathy with his wife, his first wife, and Cecil, because I think that she suffered an awful lot. Uh, for me, she's very much the uh, inspiration for Ophelia in Hamlet. And I think there's an awful lot we don't know about her, an awful lot she kept hidden. There's huge mystery around her 
first pregnancy and, and how that came about. And we know that there were stories of, um, you know, abortive po potions being given to her from Queen Elizabeth's doctor. And there was all sorts of stuff happening. Um, she suffered greatly. Uh, I think she deeply loved Edward de Vere. And I'd, I'd love to know more about her. She comes across as a, a very gentle person. Um, so my heart kind of warms every, every time I think of her. Yes, and it's an interesting, it's a, you're absolutely right, it's a, it's a completely fascinating subject, this, and particularly for people who believe that Edward de Vere was Shakespeare because of the number of occasions of the wronged woman uh, coming into the plays. And Obviously, one thinks of Desdemona and Othello particularly, uh, but also uh, Cymbeline, and we were just talking about The Winter's Tale as well. And, and I totally agree with you, uh, Rosemary, that I think she did love him. She says some nice things about him. Um, but and we don't we don't know very much about her. We know she spoke French very well. I think she was pretty clever. I suspect she had an excellent sense of humour, which is partly why she loved him. And there's, of course, was always a great difficulty from the start because Edward de Vere joined the Cecil household when she was six and he was 11 or 12. So they were almost sisters. And this, again, is something that comes out in Hamlet with Ophelia and in Cymbeline. This idea of suddenly, because of those arranged marriages in those days, that you kind of ended up having to marry your sister, which was difficult and very difficult, especially if you might have been a bit bisexual, which is a possibility for Edward de Vere. And it, and it was a struggle. But I uh, I think I, I share with you, Rosemary, the, the view that Edward de Vere was a very, very splendid man. And yes, he was difficult. And yes, he was problematic. But I refuse to accept that he was outright nasty uh, to her. Uh, she was wronged, greatly wronged by someone who went to Edward de Vere and said, your wife has been playing around in your absence. Uh, and I don't think any of us, as well, you can tell me what you think, Rosemary, but I don't think many Oxfordians believe on the evidence, the slim evidence we have about her, that she was the sort of woman who would have played around. What's your view on that? Mm. Oh, I think she was desperately loyal. And I, I think the reason she was so upset around the time of the first pregnancy is that there is some uh, very strange mystery as to how it came about. Um, and the fact that she was so devastated and upset at the time, um, I think definitely points to her, her loyalty to Edward. Yes, and, and, and the huge regret of the mistreatment of women that comes out in those Shakespeare plays, particularly those three I mentioned, uh, makes one believe that Edward de Vere realised he was wrong that he had been he had been led up a garden path and therefore uh, got extremely upset and refused to see her practically for the best part of nearly 5 years and then of course she died so the marriage when it got together and presumably was happy didn't last very long and that's when i think the floods of tears and regret begin it's, it's so in interesting isn't it if you're of the oxfordian view once you can put these Shakespearean characters into their real life positions and understand what the author is trying to do, whether he's atonement or revenge or whatever he's trying to do, he's confessing his life through his works. And once one understands that, it becomes very live and very beautiful and a very, the whole thing becomes a, a meta tragic story that, that surrounds the whole of the Shakespeare canon. Mm, absolutely. And the fact that the wronged woman as you say, it comes up in so many plays. It's 
in multiple different forms and uh, it clearly is something that deeply impacted on the author. Yes, and, and also the the woman who uh, is able to be quite putting down of men uh, uh, and seeing the faults of men. Um, feminists are always keen on those, those passages and there are many mm. of them, uh, often very wittily putting down men. Um, again, makes me feel that that uh, Anne Sissel was was really quite a quite a bright spark who was able to jolly well stick up for herself when 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 she wanted to, uh, when mm-hmm. she eventually got back with him and and things worked. Can you name two or three people who have inspired you throughout your Oxfordian journey and how they've inspired you? Um. Yes, well, I have to say Alexander has inspired me hugely. Um, I find his uh, YouTube videos absolutely and utterly fascinating. And what I love about them is that um, it goes, it shows that there are so many contemporary contemporaneous references to Edward de Vere being a secret author, because we're always told that, oh, the question only came up, you know, when Delia Bacon uh, wrote her book. Um, but that that's not the case at all. Um, there were numerous references in the 1590s. Um, and so that, that has been hugely inspiring. And to see as well how uh, with modern means of communication, um, one can reach out to so many uh, new followers um, and curious people uh, as Alexander has done. Um, the secretary of the society, Amanda Hines, is a huge uh, inspiration to me. Her dedication, um, her sense of humor, uh, her um, just all round uh, uh, passion for Edward de Vere. Um, my very good friend, Dorna Bewley, um, who is one of the most uh, knowledgeable, extraordinary Oxfordians I've ever come across, one of the kindest people. Uh, she has hugely influenced me. And in fact, in the play, uh, even though most of the travels were on my own, I did visit Castle Headingham with Dorna and that trip would never have come about except for uh, Dorna being there because there were so many things that went wrong and she knew someone who lived down the street. <laughs> and, you know, it, it was just, it all came together in the end. But yeah, Dor- uh, Dorna it, is an extraordinary person, isn't she? Because mm. she hasn't put out that much um, in terms of writing books or this or that, mm. but she's been behind the scenes of the Oxfordian movement for a very long time and provided amazing little bits of research that she's given to other writers to put in uh, mm. for themselves. And she's been very giving. She's a very, um, she's a very extraordinary person who hides her light under a bushel, I think. But if you're at the thick end of the Oxfordian movement, you, we all know mm. her and we mm. all love her. And she's a great friend, for instance, with Roger Stripmatter and with me and with you. And she's a she's a great person, uh, one of the great unsung uh, heroines of the Oxfordian movement, I think. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Rosemary, your house is on fire and you can only take one Oxfordian book with you. Which book would it be and why? <laughs> it would have to be my uh, original copy of... Um, uh, Shakespeare identified in Edward de Vere by, uh, by Looney, um, because <laughs> that's the most valuable one, let's put it that way. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it, it would be that one. But I, I have so many Oxfordian books now um, that I either need to move to a bigger house, uh, which is very difficult in Dublin because the prices are extraordinarily high, um, or else, um, you know, just 
put more and more bookcases into my bedroom and <laughs> have the walls teeming with books. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so the Looney book um, was the first full length book that was written on the on the idea that Shakespeare was the Earl of Oxford. And I have to say that I came to that book very late on the belief that whatever he said in it and however good it was, it kind of got superseded by other scholars. But so when I did read it and read it late, I was astounded by what a brilliant and useful book it is to this very day and how cleverly written. And he was a schoolmaster, wasn't he, from, from Gateshead uh, near Newcastle, uh, but a very erudite man. And off he went and ploughed this furrow and wrote this book. And he got this whole movement going. And so we owe him everything, in a sense. Um, he was the, the man who managed to think uh, in a very different way and and changed the whole world as far as the whole Shakespearean world uh, forever. So I'm really I'm really glad and impressed that you cho choose that book because um, anyway, so it's called Shakespeare Identified and it's by J.T. Looney. And Looney, of poor old Looney, gets a much lot of criticism, base and silly criticism because of his name from the Stratfordians who uh, pretend to roar around with laughter saying, isn't it pathetic? that the Oxfordian <clears throat> Bible is by a man called Looney. What do you say to people like that when uh, they challenge you on that sort of base level? Well, again, it's, um, you know, it's attacking a person. I mean, we've all come across with Oxfordianism. Um, the, <clears throat> the character of a person gets attacked rather than the argument that they're making. And this takes it to another level of ridiculousness because uh, uh, this man was known to be a very gentle person, um, very polite, very educated, uh, very giving of his time to others, very patient, as Jim Warren has, has pointed out in his recent um, brilliant book, uh, Shakespeare uh, Revolutionized. So for people then to purely focus on his name, um, I think they're just uh, saying more about themselves than anything else. Tell me, do you have, um, so you so you did that video, you did this play, which is quite a long play, isn't it? It's about uh, to, just a little over two it's, hours. And, and, a, and yes, so yes. do you have, um, do you have plans to write another play or make a film or where, where are you going to take this extraordinary talent you've got? Which direction? Um, so um, I would like to continue putting, putting on the play um, and I would like to write it up in the form of a book as well. So my journey with Shakespeare, a kind of an Irish woman's perspective. Um, and a part of me as well would like to do some further writing for theatre, maybe in the form of a, a duologue with two people on stage. So there, that's what I'm thinking at the moment. And are there, are there some more places that you can go? Or do you think you've covered all the places of relevance to Edward de Vere's life? Or is there somewhere that you're still hankering to visit? Um, there were... Uh, Yes, um, I do want to go back to Venice and um, view a few more things there, uh, some of the churches that Edward visited. I want to study them a little bit more in-depthly. Um, and I also want to visit the church um, the, where the Seven Ages of Man is um, drawn um, near Florence um, on the ground. Uh, I would like to see that, that as well. And what's been your favourite location to visit, Rosemary? Oh, definitely Mantua. It's the most underrated city uh, in Italy. It's just phenomenal. For anyone who's interested in arts or food, um, it's got everything going for it. Yes, and 
And so there's been some Oxfordian research. We, we were talking a bit uh, about the frescoes in the, is it called the Gonzaga Palace there in Mantua? Mm. Uh, uh, the, the frescoes by Giulio Romano. Uh, and one scholar, I can't remember which one now, has suggested that uh, lines from The Rape of Lucrece, um, it, when, in, the, in the poem, The Rape of Lucrece, published in 1595, uh, there's a, a whole section of it where he goes completely off topic or appears to and talks about a painting, um, a painting of Troy. And in Mantua, there's something called the Sala de Troy, the, 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 mm -hmm. the, the, the room of Troy, which has these incredible, um, absolutely stunning and rather modern looking frescoes by Giulio Romano all over the ceiling and the sides of the walls. And certain scholars have identified certain little bits uh, of that with bits of Lucrece, which if they're correct about this, utterly knocks out poor old William of Stratford because he mm -hmm. would not have been inside the Gonzaga Palace looking at these looking at these paintings. Now, when I last went there, that room was closed off and I had to invent an awful lot of lies about how I was a very important scholar and had to be allowed to look inside. And they did very kindly take me and my wife and a couple of my children into that room. And so we had it all for ourselves, beautiful big room. And they just stood there and let us be there as long as we wanted, uh, appreciating it. Did you manage to get into there when you were there? Because I think they said that there'd been an earthquake and therefore that it was unsafe to get into that room. Um, well, it, it was fine when I went there. Um... It, when was it I went 2018 I think November 2018 um, and yeah so in the Duckle Palace there is room a Sala de Troia and as you as you say the, the paintings are everywhere they're on the walls they're on the ceiling they're high up low down and it is just breathtaking absolutely breathtaking and uh, you know it, and you mentioned as well earlier uh, Alexander about the way Edward de Vere's mind works he is deeply influenced by all forms of art. All his senses are alive. So even though we know him for his, his text, um, in that text, the imagery is so vivid that this is a, a person who could really appreciate art and music. I think to the same extent that, that he appreciated uh, great literature and languages. Yes, I, I would totally agree with that. And his descriptions of music, for instance, in The Merchant of Venice and things, I mean, mm -hmm. they're so extraordinary. I'm talking about Shakespeare, of course, but they're so extraordinary, those descriptions, as though they are music themselves and they're descri describing music. It, it's the most beautiful sensation to be able to use words that well to describe something that is essentially wordless and make it as beautiful as the thing you're describing. Absolutely, yeah. And, of course... Um, the other thing about uh, Edward de Vere in Italy, we know that he, when he was in Venice, he applied to get inside the Doge's Palace to see certain chambers, which we know were covered with the in incredible paintings, and that he went to Venice armed with letters of introduction to the ducal heads of state. So, you know, while we can't prove 100% that he was in the Gonzaga Palace in Mantua, we have enough evidence to say it's very, very highly probable that he did, because uh, that's exactly what he was doing. I mean, he was going around those city-states with letters of introduction to meet the dukes mm -hmm. and, and look inside those very chambers with those beautiful pictures in them. Now, I felt when I was watching your play, um, Rosemary, that, that your 
Well, I don't want to embarrass you, but I, I was sort of slightly in love with with Edward de Vere. You, you, you <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, you know what? It's so funny because uh, um, actually, uh, one of my friends said that he was making a joke because I was like talking about Edward, and he was like, "You were always going on about Edward." But um, there, there was this really funny uh, story um, a couple of years ago where this woman, I don't know, was it she? She decided to marry uh, some fictitious pirate in her imagination. It was the craziest thing ever, but I kind of resonated with me because I was thinking oh my god here am I obsessed with a man who lived you know four and a half centuries ago um, and I, I'm thinking about him every day uh, and I'm really curious about him and I want to know what was going on in his mind so yeah it, it definitely um, I'd love to meet him I, I'd you know when they ask you know who would you have from the past at your dinner table he would be number one <laughs> Yeah, you know that Hillary Clinton, when asked that question, who would you like to meet who's dead from history? She said, uh, well, whoever it was who wrote Shakespeare. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gosh, and we we don't hear about that, interestingly enough. Well, they, they smother it mm. properly. Anyway, don't feel embarrassed, because yeah. I'm rather in love with uh, Edward <laughs> as well. And not in a hot <laughs> way, I'll, I'll, I'll say. Uh, but partly I, I identify very much with the idea of... Uh, the the sort of genius who uh, is has many many enemies, but a wider circle of friends than any of us are likely to have, and that partly that came out of my study of of Evelyn Waugh, who very who's a very similar sort of character who lots of people detested and were rude about him, just as they were with Edward de Vere, and yet he had this enormous group of of really, really, really loyal friends who loved him. And one one gets the same sense with Edward de Vere because these people are, they're very individual. They just go off in their own way and they say what they think. They don't mince about. They don't play the society game and and they're not necessarily the, the best mannered people, but they're observing us all and then giving back in a most extraordinary way to, to us. And And I think we owe geniuses a little bit of leeway uh, and allow them to be slightly different without trying to judge them and stamp on them for not behaving exactly like everybody does in polite society. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I do think a trait of genius is uh, that one can be difficult and cranky and uh, not very pleasant often to be around with. Um, and if we are to then as a society say that, well, we're not dealing with that person, we're not dealing with their arts, we're not welcoming them into the fold. We're the ones who are losing out. Yeah. And and another connection, and one, one reason why I love Edward de Vere so much, quite apart from his literary talent, is he was astoundingly generous. Do you, do, do you want to say anything about that and his generosity, the connection to Timon of Athens and the, the giving, giving that he did all the time? Uh, absolutely. I mean, he was the most... Um, generous man I mean when you think about it he was born into wealth now I know there was a lot of problems with his um, lands uh, being you know taken off him and all of that and he I think it was um, Mark Anderson described him and I think it was in the context of the play Time of Athens um, how reflective that play is of Edward de Vere's lifestyle of rather than being upwardly mobile he was downwardly mobile because he he gave all his money away and 
the, the Stratfordians who don't like Edward de Vere would like to say that he was um, a, a, a spendthrift and he had, you know, just really careless with money. But in fact, he was a huge patron of uh, writers, of musicians. Uh, he supported them financially and because he, he, he saw the greatness within them um, and he, at some level, he did that thing that we all know we should do, but we find it really hard, which is to realize that um, death is just around the corner. You can't take it with you. So how do you li live a really good life? Um, and that's what he did with, with his money and his funds. And he went through so many legal difficulties and, you know, at times trying to get lands back, etc. Um, but ultimately, he was always um, giving and bestowing his generosity onto others. Yes, and not, not just financial generosity, it was giving light. He was giving light to others. There's a, there's a wonderful thing, I think, from 1600, a man called Davidson makes an anagram um, of, uh, it's in Latin, but it works out as, uh, with deaf ear, I shall see. Uh, and it's a joke, of course, de vere. It's, it's a deaf mm. ear. Uh, the idea that you'll see with de Vere. And he says that this is an anagram about Edward de Vere. And it's uh, uh, one of many little messages about Edward de Vere that he was, in a sense, an Apollo. He was a Phoebus. He was someone who, by the warmth, the warmth and the mm. light of of like a sun, um, he shed that light and, and inspired others to go off and uh, write plays. And, 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 you know, in many ways, he created a, a great, a great literature around him, not just just through the Shakespeare plays, but through all those scholars and writers who were around his table and uh, feeding off his uh, very sweet liberality, as is described by one of his uh, people around his table called Locke. Rosemary, we uh, obviously could talk forever. Um, uh, it's such fun. And you have so many not only interesting insights, but lovely ways of putting things. And uh, I don't know if people in America know, but in England, we all get very excited when we hear, when we hear beautiful Irish accents. Uh, <laughs> it's, been, it's been a great pleasure chatting to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, I don't know, I think Maudie may be able to say, oh, do, do we have a system whereby people can subscribe to these 1740 podcasts? That's going to be up and running in the next couple of weeks. So if you can keep an eye on the website. Um, and that all the information will be there and on our social media platforms on Twitter and Facebook as well. Great. So we're going to try and make the 1740 a, a regular podcast event. And what a what a wonderful one to be springing off with here with with Rosemary. Thank you, Rosemary, very much indeed for joining us. A thank pleasure, you. Alexander. Marty, thank you so much. Thank you.